In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Canonization of Venerable Frederick Madigan. Oh God, thank you for the life and holiness of your servant, Venerable Frederick Madigan. I pray you will honor him by the title of saint. He dedicated himself completely to his creativity, to make it known, love, and serve by the people who you love. Lord, I pray through Venerable Frederick Madigan's intercession for the Catholics of Michigan. May they have the mission and zeal of the apostles and the resources necessary to reach the intended soul to build up the body of Christ. Amen. Okay. So, we uh, hopefully today will finish off how the um, Jewish people governed themselves um, just before the time of the Lord and at the time of the Lord. Um, recap. So last week, um, we looked at <coughs> the chief priests and how of the 200 chief priests, one was elected once a year to become a high priest only from then. Um, the ordinary priests who are of the tribe of Levi, um, Pharisees, um, I'm going to go over what they believe in a second, Pharisees, the Sadducees, so, and the Essenes, um, the Levites, who are just ordinary priests, the priestly tribe, and we have still to look at the scribes, I added this, you'll find out why, then um, the Sanhedrin, the temple and the synagogue we haven't touched upon yet. Um, so, recap of what the, what the story is behind the Pharisees. So, <clears throat> Pharisees came to the fore during what we would call the two books of uh, Maccabees, which are two books that are not in the edited Bibles that non-Catholics have. Um, they are actually historical books, and it was about 100 years before the Lord was born. There was eventually an uh, uprising of the, the Jews against the people who were trying to Hellenize. Um, so that doesn't mean that they were trying to do things the way she wants them done. Hellenization means to do things in a Greek way. Um, because the Greek nations are called the Hellenic nations because of Alexander the Great. He spread the, the, the Greek way of thinking and Greek philosophy all across the Mediterranean and all the way to India, actually. So um, the Pharisees rose up from that, from the Maccabees, as a purer way to try to live Judaism, as um, <coughs> people who interpreted the first what we call the first five books of the, the Bible, the Torah, the Pentateuch. Um, and they followed the tradition of the elders. So they believed in interpretation of the written word. They had a belief in oral tradition. At the time, by the time of Jesus, there were two particular schools. If you remember, I couldn't remember one of them, but I knew, I knew Hillel. The other one is Shammai. Um, these were the two main schools that were in existence within the Pharisees at the time of the Lord. <coughs> Excuse me. Hillel is the grandfather of Gamaliel, and Gamaliel is mentioned in Acts of the Apostles. He's the one who says to the Sanhedrin, um, leave the 
followers of Jesus alone, because if it's of God, we don't want to be fighting God, and if it's not of God, it will disappear. And because the rest is history. Um, so the two main differences in these schools, I've got a quote somewhere, I think. Um, I mentioned this because when Jesus is asked about divorce, and he says it's not, a, it's not allowed, and he talks about they, the people respond, the scribes respond, and I'll get to the scribes, of course, that Moses allowed it, and Moses allowed it for reasons that I don't have time to get into here, but I did mention at Mass, where we had it a couple of weeks ago. Um, the school of Shammai felt that you should be able to offload your wife, even if, even if, she, even if she was a bad cook. Well, I said offload your wife because according to Judaism, you acquire a wife. So it's done by acquisition. That's the Hebrew word which you use. It's acquisition of a wife. Um, and they're not the only people who hold that. The wives are part of goods and chapel. Um, whereas Hillel, his school of thought was um, that you should treat your wife according to the higher level of the, of the Jewish law. And these two schools, as I am as I understand it, within Orthodox Judaism, these two schools are still followed. They're part of the Talmud that I've talked about before. And um, so there were more schools than that, but that's the two main schools that are passed down and the two main schools, as I understand it, that, have, that, that still exist. So what did the Pharisees believe? They accepted oral tradition as well as the Mosaic, Mosaic law. Um, the believed that people had free will, but also that God could make you do things. So that's cancelling out your free will. Right? So if God can make you do things, then you don't have free will. But they held that you had free will, but they also held that God could make you do things. And if you're sitting there thinking, is that not what we believe? No, we don't believe that at all. We believe you have free will. So mistake many people make, and this is a mistake that's made in a lot of non-Catholic Christian mindsets. The world is not a clockwork model that God winds up people and just lets them go. Does God act in the world? He does. But God loves us so much he respects our free will and we have a free choice. God does not compel us to do anything. Does God, can God speak to our hearts? Yes, he can, but he will not make us do anything. So we have complete free will. That's why when we die and we're put we're before the judgment of God, we are judged on the choices that we made. And you can't blame anybody else because we have free will. And, the, and that's, so there's a conflict in the, the way they think about this. It's, it's, and I'm obviously not an expert in Judaism, but they, they had this strange conflict on. They also believed in a very, very complicated um, view of hierarchy of angels and, and demons. Um, if you go into angelology, which is the theology of angels, um, we have a pretty complicated layers of, I think it's eight layers that we have of, of angels. And, um, but not so much for demons, just demons. Um, but they had it all laid out and they had it all this all locked out and stuff like that. They believed that um, the soul was immortal 
and uh, so you would be rewarded or punished depending on the way you the way that you lived. So you might remember I said that the Pharisees held that if you you died when the Messiah came, you could wait in Sheol and the Messiah would would redeem you. Um, if you were bad, you went to some dark little place where you were in eternal torment. So hell, obviously. Um, the Essenes, very much like a monastic community, as I talked about last week, they didn't like the Pharisees or the Sadducees. They believed in communal things. Uh, John the Baptist, very possibly John the Baptist, was an Essene. Uh, they accepted marriage, but only for the sake of procreation, because it wasn't to be loved, because all your love was to go towards God. And they attributed everything to fate. Which is another kind of strange idea. You know, you know what just happens. And um, so that's complete arbitrary. That, that's much, although they're, they're very early kind of Christian in their mindset, attributing things to fate just means it's, it's at the whim of God. That's like the clockwork thing. God winds people up and he just lets it tick along. And, and he doesn't actually act or have a plan. And of course he does. The Sadducees, um, as the old joke goes, the reason why they're sad is because they don't believe in an eternity, an afterlife. It's not a good joke, but it's an old joke. They were the political, uh, politically powerful group in the in the Jews. Um, so that's why I had to do this, uh, this whole complicated thing here. Um, Sadducees are called uh, the Sadducees because they are... Does anybody remember why they're called that? Where they get their name from? I remember that. They are the upper class, but why? Okay, so they're called the Sadducees after the person they all claimed to be, be descended from, Zadok, the priest, at the time of David and Solomon. Uh, they claim that, and as I'm going to get more into them now, um, that's what they claim. So the Sadducees, the high priests, the chief priests and the high priests are all Sadducees. They, their complete domain is the temple, which hopefully we'll, we'll cover tonight, we finish everything. They were in complete charge of the temple. They did not believe in afterlife. They did not believe in angels. They did not believe in demons. Um, they had a very strict, literal understanding of the Mosaic law, not to any interpretation. So, um, so frankly, that things that happen in, you know, somebody might say to you, in fact, somebody might have said this to you, it doesn't say in the Bible that abortion's wrong. Doesn't say the words in the Bible that abortion's wrong. But it does say in the Bible that killing is wrong. Right? But for them, the fact it doesn't say it in the Bible specifically would mean that there wasn't a prohibition on it. So you can see how that's a, that, that in some ways is a very, very easy way to live your life because you're living like a thousand years after these laws were written, and there's a whole lot of them that will no longer be applied. It doesn't say in the Bible, you've not to speed, right? The 
But if you're breaking laws that are valued, that are valued laws in modern society and put yourself or others at risk, then that's reckless and that's disregard to the body that God gave you for talking, for talking to. Um, it doesn't say in the Bible that you shouldn't throw stones through Phyllis's window. Uh, which is why I do it on a regular basis. <laughs> um, so they took it all. I mean, that extremely, literally, if it wasn't written down there, they didn't care about it. Um, now, in Jewish circles, in Jewish books about, about the history of Judaism, they call them, they call them conservative. Um, but for us, in the modern sense of conservative, we would say the Pharisees, in the modern term of conservative, were, were more conservative, because they had a stricter way of life, and they were applying it, how do you put it into practice? Whereas they're called conservative, and I guess it's, it, which is ironic really, it's the literal meaning of that. They are conserving behaviours that are no longer within the time that they live. Um, you sometimes will find that, as I say, you'll meet people who will say to you, who claim to be Christians, and they'll say, well, it doesn't say that in the, in the Bible. Um, some things, as I said to you before, some things are implicit, some things are explicit. Um, many things will need to be interpreted, which is why, of course, you have to have tradition, which is what they had. So um, that's why what they believe, the Pharisees, as I put this up here, what they believe is translated into English from Hebrew is the tradition of the elders. That doesn't mean old folk. That means the people who went before. Things are passed on, if you remember the word tradition means it means to pass on. So, um, they had, uh, historically, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the Essenes had nothing to do with each other. Historically. But you know, there's an old expression. Um, my, your enemy, if your enemy is my enemy, we can be friends, whatever that. Actually, I just forgot what the expression is. What is it? Your, uh, the enemy of my enemy is your enemy. Thank you very much. Yes. If only you were so good at answering other questions. <laughs> now, so the Sadducees and the Pharisees, um, this was also a class struggle. Because these were the hereditary nobility, the ones that worked in the peace there. And the Pharisees tended to be normal, everyday people. So you bear that in mind as you as, as in the future when you hear that the Sadducees and the Pharisees and how they interact in, in the, the Gospels. Um, the Pharisees went to the temple the Sadducees controlled the temple. And they controlled everything in the temple. And there was no love lost between the two of them because as far as the Pharisees were concerned, the Sadducees were living lives that were completely contrary to what they understood. And as far as the Sadducees were concerned, the Pharisees were modernists who had completely distorted and changed uh, the message. So there, there's, there's, and the, the scenes that I said, wanted nothing to do with any of them. Um, so that's the, that's the, as I said, there were 24 different kinds of 
the number 24 kept coming up last night. But that's the main, the main one is in the time of, of Jesus. So, um, I'm going, I'm, I'll talk about Sanhedrin now, and then I'll, I'll go through what the scribes are. So the Sanhedrin, we've all heard of the Sanhedrin. Um, the Sanhedrin is the high priests and the chief priests. They had a, um, a, as we've talked about, a religious elite, a religious nobility. So the, the fancy word for how the Jews govern themselves at this time is called a theocracy. Now, God intended them to be a theocracy, which means that instead of having a king, God is your king, until you get to the end of the book of Exodus, when they start mourning that everybody else around them has a king, and they want a king, and they're told God is our king, and they just keep mourning and mourning about that, and God says to says to them, um, if I give you a king, he will take your money, he will take your sons for war, he will take your daughters, he will abuse you, and you will be indentured to him. And they still say yes. So they get everything they deserve. Right? And it all is. As you know, in even David, who's the greatest king, it all goes very, very ropey, and it never works out well, but by creating the kingly line, which is also a priestly line, that's the line that, that Jesus comes from. So the Sanhedrin is made up of the chief priests, the high priest, obviously, he's in charge of it, um, and the nobility, who are the people who claim inheritance from the ruling families from the time of the Babylon exile. Um, most of this, as I put here, Gennaro, most of them are Sadducees. There's also scribes on it, and I'll explain that when I get there. Um, so there's a lot of contention because the scribes are nearly all Pharisees. But the Sanhedrin is dominated by the Sadducees. The Sadducees want to keep what they've got. They don't want to rock the boat. The Pharisees want the Romans and the, the invading powers to go. But the Sadducees and the nobility want to keep the way things are because they like it, because they're in charge of the temple, and so they're making money out of this. And this, the nobility and the line of Zadok inter, have intermingled. And you might remember this, because I talked about this in Holy Week, that um, the Sadducees were like the Mafia. So Annas was a crook. So the guy, the, the ones who, there were four families of Sadducees who were Cosa, Cosa Nostra. And that was uh, Boethus, Phoebia, Kamit, and Annas. They were not purebred Zadoks. They had, they had, were intermingled with the aristocracy, but they have rest, had wrestled through doing deals with the Romans. They had wrestled themselves into positions of being in charge of the temple because there was big money to be made in that. 
that's what's going on. So you know, again, as you begin to, to after this, and you're hearing, this is why I want to cover these things, when you're listening to the scripture, and you hear Jesus saying, in Mark's gospel, I think it is, where one of the, somebody says to look at the temple, and I've got hand out for the temple. Look at the temple, isn't it a magnificent building? And Jesus says, do not this doubt, this temple down, I will rebuild it in three days. What do you think they're thinking? We knock down their piggy bank. They're, they're thinking, he needs to go. He needs to be dead. Not just he needs to go out of Jerusalem, he needs to be dead. Because he's talking about, he's, he's hitting, he's hitting us in our purse strings. <laughs> and you know how politicians don't like that? You've all noticed that? Um, so, to give an idea, Annas himself, so you're only supposed to be chief priest, I think, was that said last year, for one year, three years, I think, at maximum, depending uh, on the, the period. Annas was the chief priest from 6 AD to 15 AD, and after him came one of his son-in-laws, Caiaphas, and then it was another son-in-law, and then it was a cousin, and then it went back to Annas until the destruction of the temple in AD 70, which is why we don't have all we know, this includes the Jews, all we know about Sadducees, or most of what we know, something like 90% of what we know about the Sadducees, all come from the Gospels and the Acts of the Apostles. Because they don't exist anymore. Because the only reason for existence was to look after the Temple. And that reason doesn't exist anymore. So, And many of them were killed in AD 17. When we get to the destruction of Jerusalem, it is extremely unpleasant. What, uh, what the Romans did. And the Romans felt that the Jews were asking for it, but then the Romans, even the Romans decided they were going to make a point. That's why the Romans have that expression, leave no stone unturned. Because when the Romans did so, after Hannibal, you all, you all know Hannibal and his elephants, right? So he went from Carthage, North Africa, modern day Tunisia, and he, he went up through Spain, up over the Pyrenees, and down towards Rome with his elephants. When the Romans decided, that they were going to remove Carthage from the map. It's exactly what they did. They went, they invaded Carthage, they completely obliterated it, they took salt and sowed salt on everything so nothing could grow there. To this day, it is a barren area. Because if you messed with the Romans, in the height of their, of their, uh, their power, if you messed with the Romans, the, the Romans would completely obliterate you. <coughs> the lucky thing for the Scottish were was that when the Romans got to to Scotland, it was it was the furthest extent the empire went, and they decided it wasn't worth invading Scotland because they tried it, and then they just built a big huge big wall of course. <coughs> so, but if they had taken it upon themselves in other places, they just completely removed removed that. As I was mentioning the other day, the only thing we know about Druids. It's because Julius Caesar said that they cornered Druids in Anglesey, which is a sort of isthmus, almost an island, off the coast of north coast of um, Wales, pokes into the Irish Sea. And uh, the only thing we know about Druids, bear this in mind, the only thing we know about Druids is Julius Caesar said, we cornered the Druids, the religious people who used to sacrifice human beings to their pretend gods, and we killed them all. You think about all the stuff that people say about Stonehenge and all these other things, and how they dress up as druids. 
And all we know about Druids is that Julius Caesar killed them all. That's all we know. There's no other writings. Yeah, the way people have turned that into something. And there's probably people who will hear this on the radio and they'll think, that can't be true, Father. I saw a program on uh, the History Channel all about the Druids. Well, you might have, but it was all made up. I met somebody once who claimed to be a Druid and he did not like the fact that I said to him, yeah, it's all made up. He said, no, 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 it's not. On the subject, you've all heard of Wicker? Right. Wicker was invented in 1964. <coughs> in California? No, that's a fact. I've met people who claim, who'll say to me, well, we practice, we practice Wicker. Really? Kwanzaa is older than that. Kwanzaa was invented in 1962. Uh, you don't know what Kwanzaa is? No, Wicker. Wicker is... No, I hope that was recorded. She said it's furniture. That's That's wicker. Wicker. Not wicker. That's furniture made by Cain. This is a so-called earth religion that they claim is white magic going all the way back to the time before Jesus. And it was invented in 1964. So. All the way back to Jesus. Who was the leader of those? Mm-hmm. Oh, it's just kind of happy nonsense. You might not have heard of it, but a lot of celebrities. There's quite a lot of celebrities would claim to be to be Wiccans. Anyway, no, and I'm, I'm glad you, I'm glad you've never heard it, and don't bother looking it up because you'd just be looking thinking this is just garbage, garbage, garbage. Um, many of the people you see with face piercings and inappropriate tattoos and strange hair. Many of the women who would do that, and a lot of women who are gay, will say that they're, they're follow uh, Wiccans. And they get very, very upset. See, if you say to them, it was invented in 1964, you need to step back. Because <laughs> they get very feisty about that. Um, and because, they, because they claim, and some people and they believe some of the nonsense that they're told. Um, You've heard of Kwanzaa, right? So Kwanzaa was a made-up thing by UCLA to give black people something to to do, and they thought that sounded like a Zulu, a uh, Swahili word, so they just made that up. So. Yes. So back to this in heaven. Um, so they're crooks, and it's a very corrupt organisation. There's 71 members on it, and they're divided into three groups: the chief priest groups, the elders, which is not this elders. It's the nobility. So, and the other one is the scribes, which we'll get to in a second. So, it's two thirds heavy towards the same, the same mindset. Because they're all interrelated, the nobility and the Sadducees. Um, the idea of it was that when they got back from the Babylon, Babylonian captivity, they didn't have, if, you, if you've ever heard the, I can't remember, can't remember what, what um, book of the Bible it's in, but they find scrolls and they read out the scrolls and they realise that what they've been doing in Babylon is not the authentic Judaism and they need to form a group in order to make sure that they put into practice what the scrolls that they've found in, in the remains of Solomon's temple is. And that's where the Sanhedrin come from. Because in Babylon, as I'll get to when I get to some of that, 
that's where synagogues started while they were expelled from the Holy Land. Um, so the idea is that they are supposed to control like a theocracy and make sure that everybody behaves correctly. But of course, it's it's a, they're a kangaroo group from the point of view of the, they're illegitimate from the point of view of the faith. So you can imagine how the Essenes feel about them and some of the other groups like the Zealots who um, begin to appear at the end of Jesus' life just after him. The Zealots will have nothing to do with the the Sanhedrin. They won't pay the temple tax because they realise how corrupted they all are. Again, this is important, I think, for you to know. So, I did mention a lot of this during Holy Week, but it's important for you to know that what Jesus is dealing with is it's a fait accompli. They've already made up their minds. He's going to die. It's not a valid court. Apart from anything else, when they are trying, Jesus, um, the, the book of Leviticus, Mosaic Law says that the Sanhedrin is not to convene during the hours of darkness. If you remember, Jesus is taken to them and it's an emergency meeting of the Sanhedrin and it happens in darkness. And the reason why it happens in darkness is because they don't, the nobility and Sadducees the high priests and the nobility don't want the scribes there because they've already experienced Jesus playing two of them off against each other, which is in Luke's Gospel, where he talks about, uh, and Paul does it as well in Acts, so if you've read Acts, Paul at one point is arrested, and the Pharisees are the ones that bring him forward, there's some Sadducees there, and Paul says to the Pharisees, you know, they're accusing me of not believing in an afterlife, and then they start going at each other, and Paul just walks away. And uh, the, the Roman judge says, as far as I'm concerned, you're all, cra- you're all crazy. But when they're getting Jesus together, they wanted to do it quickly because they only wanted the two-thirds there that would definitely... Now, they couldn't condemn him to death. That wasn't right. The Romans stopped that. But they wanted it to be that all... There were no votes against them. So they didn't want the scribes to be present because somebody like Nicodemus was probably a scribe. Um, and um, I forgot his name uh, the one who took the Lord's body and buried him starts with uh, Joseph Arimathea thank you yes. um, I was going to say Arimathea um, so that's what that's what they are um, they are all about protecting the status quo uh, and keeping the, the money pot going so the scribes, who are the scribes? Um, just before the time of Jesus. The, because of the way that many of the normal people felt about how the Sadducees behaved and the Pharisees had got stronger and stronger and stronger, there then became this a new dynamic group called the scribes. And they came from all over the place. Some of them were priests, some of them were merchants, some of them were artisans, some of them were laborers. Um, these two guys happen to both be, um, imagine that's a brick layer, a brick layer, a carpenter who begin to express that they're, they're being, that God's speaking to them. And so unlike the, the whole hereditary thing for the Sadducees and the financial stuff, the authority of the scribes was upon their learning 
and their meditations and their insights and their understanding of what the Mosaic Law and what the Prophets had said and other things that were passed down. So they were unpacking, as you know, I quote the Church Fathers uh, a lot. Um, the scribes would be like the Church Fathers, telling us, passing on to us, what the Apostles had learned from Jesus and also how we should understand what it says in Scripture so we don't look at it literally unless it's meant to be literal so that we can have an understanding of how that all unfolds. Um, so in order to be a scribe, um, first of all, you had to learn, by the age of 14, you had to have all of the Pentateuch, the first five books of the, the Bible, and the prophets, you had to know them all off by heart by the time you were 14. So you would normally have started at seven. So hands up who's memorized any book of the Bible. That's good for the sake of the radio. Everybody's put their hand up. They're that good a group of people. And they've all memorized separate, separate books as well. If you're going to memorize one, memorize something like the book of Tobit, which is only four chapters long. But that, and, and as mentioned before, the, the Wahhabi schools in Islam, which are funded by Saudi Arabia, that's what they do. They, the, the, the boys, have to learn the Quran. They have to learn the pronunciation of the Quran in Arabic, even if they don't speak Arabic. They have to learn it off by heart. Let me just repeat that. They have to learn to be able to, in, by rote, repeat the Quran in Arabic, even if they don't speak Arabic. So, it's a, and they have to pray it in Arabic. They have to learn how to, what the Arabic words are, even if they can't speak Arabic. And I know that all sounds very, very strange, but I can tell you that that used to be the case, so it may still be the case in some places, where people could, some of you might be able to, if I started the, our father in Latin, some of you might be able to join in, but if I stopped and said, what's that word mean? You might not know. So it's not as odd, I mean, it's certainly quite an undertaking, but it's not as, as necessarily odd as you think it is. Um, they then had to find a scribal teacher and then undergo a lengthy instruction in personal conduct and the application of the laws in everyday situations. So that's the tradition of the elders and whatever the scribe, how he sees it, should be put into practice. And they, they followed their, the, the, scribe, the scribal teachers so closely that often they were instructed to actually do the same actions as they did, walk the way they did. So, Phil, could you read out? I just have a quick question. Yes, go ahead. <clears throat> Did they have a, a military arm? No, they weren't allowed to. How did they keep from being in civil war with the Chinese? So, as I mentioned last week, I'm not, I'm not surprised you didn't remember, the, the Levites, the tribe of Levite, mm-hmm. which was, there's like, what is that, I think there was 9,000 of them or something, they also acted as temple police. So, they would have been the, mili- the military arm of the high priests and the chiefs of the temples. But that's why 
That's why the Romans get fed up with them. And I mentioned last week about Pontius Pilate. When Pontius Pilate first went there, he, what Pontius Pilate tried to do was he tried to de-Judaize the whole shooting match. And um, it got really, really ugly. And then um, I think the emperor at the time was Caligula. Uh, he said to, to Pilate, leave them alone. Emperor Julius Caesar said they weren't, you weren't to do these kind, we weren't to do these kind of things because they helped us. And so we've given them that, that promise. And we don't want to undermine promises that we've made to other people unless they break it. Don't try and change them for the sake of changing them. So then they were allowed to go back to, to all of this. But the thing is, and Napoleon used to say, divide and conquer. And the British were great at that. So when we, when we, the British, when we went to East Africa, we found about 16 tribes. The largest was the Luo. So, Philo Sylvester, who was in Rogers City, he was a Luo. It's the largest tribe in what we would now call Uganda, Kenya, and Tanzania. Um, the, the most feared tribe is the Maasai. They're nomadic and they're not interested in other people. But when we got there, the, the, there was a tribe called the Kikuyu that were very friendly to us, the Brits. So we put them in charge and told the other two large tribes, the Luo, and I can't remember what the other tribe's called, we told the two of them that we picked the Kikuyu um, because the Kikuyu was smarter than the two of them, but if they could smarten themselves up, then we would give them. And they started fighting all the time. So any time in Parliament, this is still the case now in Kenya, in the Kenyan government, if uh, a Luo member of Parliament says something, whatever the other tribe is, they immediately shoot it down. That's that's an unpleasant kind of adversarial so politics. It's, it's actually, I was just going to say that, and that is the problem with where things are going. That even if somebody says something which makes sense for the country, that for America, that people will automatically gainsay them because you can't say anything that's wholesome or good because you're a Republican or you're a Democrat, and, and that that kind of thing, that's when bad things happen. Because instead of working together for the greater glory of the country, what happens is it's adversarial and then you have things like Nazism comes to the fore. And then, or you begin to develop, which is really how Nazism came to the fore, you begin to develop a thing that's called proportional representation. And so Belgium, when I lived in the Netherlands, Belgium's a southern neighbour. We used to have this joke, what time is it? Well, it's ten past the latest Belgian government. <laughs> because in the three years that I lived in the Netherlands, back in the 80s, in the three years I was there, there was 40-plus Belgian governments. And present modern-day Israel, that's why some of its policies are so strange, because they have the, the two, they have the Labour Party and whatever the other bigger party is, but they have all these small religious parties, and in proportional representation... So say, you, say the Green Party here, like Cornell Wilde is running for the Green Party, right? So say the Green Party here started getting votes. So <clears throat> you have the Republicans, the Democrats, and this other party. We'll call them the Green Party. And nobody gets what they vote for then. Because what happens is deals are done to try and get the, the smaller party to make the majority with one of the other parties. And, and we've li- lived in Britain, we lived through that in the 80s and the 90s, and uh, and it's really unpleasant because you, and then nobody gets what they vote for. 
But it's also unpleasant if you only have a two-party system when it becomes so unpleasantly adversarial. And it doesn't really matter who's to blame for that, because actually everybody's to blame for that, because it's it's not something... Uh, you know, and, and this may have happened to all of you, because I hear this a lot from people, members members of families that have stopped talking to other members of families because they voted for somebody. That, that's We don't make progress in society if you just stop talking to someone because they've voted for someone else. What you do is you engage with them and you try to explain things and you try to reach a consensus of what is best for the for the, the country. So, I guess that's why I wondered how those three, top three, even though they were so different, how they kept from... Well, remember the Essenes lived out in the desert. So they had everyone into town. And these two, there was constant... There was constant friction. That's why it's so amazing in the Gospels that they got together to, to go after Jesus. Of course, the reasons were different. The, the Sadducees' reasons was because of, the, because of the money. The Pharisees was because they genuinely thought that he was leading people astray because he was reinterpreting. And the sad thing about that is Jesus was actually explaining correct understanding of what the tradition of the elders because that's what we have we have a tradition of the elders, we know what the Old Testament means like today the gospel for today is the start of Luke's gospel for weekdays and it's the incident where Jesus goes back home to Nazareth and he takes a scroll and it's in Luke chapter 4 and he takes a scroll and he reads out from Isaiah and he says this is all fulfilled here now in me and they want to kill him uh, they immediately want to, they, they think, oh, you're the son of Joseph, the carpenter, and they want to go and kill him. Um, but they want to kill him. They probably, they probably want to kill him because the, 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 um, somebody who was a false prophet, the sentence on a false prophet was death. So it was, it was legitimate for them to, to want to take him and go, go and kill him. So they have very different reasons for wanting Jesus out of the way. But um, they both had what they thought were good reasons. Um, well, um, John chapter 20, verse 1 to 8, which is one that you all would know off by heart. But one, John chapter 20, verse 1 to 8. Okay. John 20, verse 1 to 8. Yes. On the first day of the week, Mary of Magdala came to the tomb early in the morning, while it was still dark, and saw the stone removed from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved and told them, They have taken the Lord from the tomb, and we don't know where they put him. So Peter and the other disciple went out and came to the tomb. They both ran, but the other disciple ran faster than Peter and arrived at the tomb first. He bent down and saw the burial cloths there, but did not go in. When Simon Peter arrived after him, he went into the tomb and saw the burial cloths there, and the cloth that had covered his head, not with the burial cloths, but rolled up in a separate place. Then the other disciple also went in, the one who arrived at the tomb first, and he saw and believed. For they did not yet understand. No, that's it. That's it. Oh, thank you. Just that last line again. 
Read the last line again. Eight. Then the other disciple also went in, the one who had arrived at the tomb first, and he saw and believed. Okay, so you might have heard this before. I think I, again, I think I said this at Easter, um, talking about the very text. Bearing in mind that people who scribes had um, the disciples followed them from the age of 14 onwards and they were often encouraged or took upon themselves to actually act the way they act, to walk the way they walked. So John, who wrote that, was probably about 15, 16, 17 when he first encountered Jesus. Now John, as you, you will remember from the betrayal of Peter, somehow John knew someone in the chief priest's house because he was able to get Peter into the garden. It was John that got Peter into the garden, you know, with the cockroach three times and denial around the fire. Thanks. So they're running to the temple and John, realising that Peter, the Pope, um, John stop, stops and he looks in and he sees the wrappings and then Peter goes in then John looks in and he sees what's the last line again? And the other disciple also went in the one who had arrived at the tomb first and he saw and believed okay so one of the church fathers suggests and other people have picked this up more recently John probably tried to walk like Jesus to speak like Jesus and he probably tried to fold up his bed linens like Jesus because that's what disciples did and when he saw the wrappings what we would call the Shroud of Turin any of this, or the Sudanarium which is in the, the temple of the Cathedral in Valencia the head covering um, when he saw how they were folded he looked and he believed because he knew exactly how Jesus folded things. So, um, it's a very interesting thing. Because this is well recorded that people would try to copy the... And, and when it, you might remember, when I talked about it over Easter, it was... Um, when I was at school, it was, a, it was one of my classmates who was trying his best to walk with John Wayne. <laughs> You don't get a walk like that without sitting in a horse for a long time, right? But, um, and, and so it's just a, it's a beautiful thing to, to think about. Okay, so when the student was considered, the scribal student was considered to be at a point where he could make um, his own decisions and interesting points about the law and justice, he was um, he became what was called a non-ordained scribe. A non-appointed scribe. And then, right about the age of 40, somewhere between 35 and 40, he could formally become an appointed, ordained scribe in his own right, and then he would be addressed as rabbi, which means teacher. So you're in for a long haul, right? When you're, if you're going to follow a scribal teacher, it's not, it's not a, a light thing to, to take on. And many of you, I'm sure, because many people do think this, that we should, we should be training our priests more like this. That they have to, a big, big period of learning, which is kind of what St. Ignatius of Loyola, it 
takes about 15 to 20 years to train to be a Jesuit. Um, there's a lot of study involved, uh, good or bad. But you still tend to, and Jesuits tend to get ordained about 32, whereas all things being equal, um, diocesan priests tend to get ordained about 26. Um, okay, so at the time of Jesus, young Jews came from all over the Roman Empire in order to sit at the feet of rabbis. This is important. Um, the teaching action for a rabbi is the rabbi would walk about or stand and the disciples would sit on the ground. So, Martha and Mary. What is Mary doing? Sitting at the feet of Jesus. And yet people would say that Jesus said no, that Christianity is misogynist and we don't have any place for women apart from the lady. That's madness. But Mary, it would seem, was a disciple. In the feeding episodes, what does Jesus say to his disciples? Tell them to sit down. The teaching moments. That's why it's symbolic of Mass. It's a teaching moment. He's telling, telling them to sit down. And uh, in fact, in one of them, the, the one that happens in John, the start of John chapter 6, he doesn't just tell him to sit down. He's told, tell him to sit down in the grass. And there's a, a reflection in one of the Psalms where one of the Psalms says that he will nurture us through, through feeding us and guiding us through grass. Or something like that. Um, which I didn't write down there. I just remember that. Um, okay, so there were, at any given time in Jerusalem, there was probably about 10 scribal schools on the go. Um, this man, Gamaliel's um, uh, grandfather, uh, it's recorded that he had as many as 80 pupils at any given time. Now, when he died, I mentioned this last week, I think, when he died, um, it's recorded, or the tradition in the Talmud has been passed down, is that when, when he died, some of the light of God passed from the world. That's how much he was revered. He was a very kind man. We know that because we have the writings of, and uh, a lot of the thoughts of his in the Talmud and also in um, the, his grandson, Gamaliel. Um, just to make clear, to make sure that you don't ever get confused about this. So his name is Hillel, not Hallel. Do you know what Hallel is? <coughs> right, so you know um, Jews eat kosher, Arabs eat Hallel. Just in case, it's got nothing to do with him. It's just what happens that they're both Semitic languages. Because um, actually the L bit at the end always means God. Um, the scribes were held in great awe and respect throughout the whole of the Jewish world. Some people compared them to the, like the prophets of old. Although we don't have necessarily them all getting rounded up and killed. Um, they possessed vast knowledge. And many of them claimed to possess secret knowledge. 
and the workings of the Lord's power. So there's some mumbo-jumbo probably going on as well. In many ways, they, they, are, they are seen, should be seen, as the legitimate heirs of the prophetic tradition, because they sometimes spoke with prophets. So you can imagine, you've all, you've all heard enough of the prophets, um, what the prophets would have thought of all this shenanigans with all the money and stealing and all that kind of stuff. You know, as we've talked about at the weekend about Prophet Jeremiah, um, they would have, uh, they'd have wanted Jeremiah dead as well, all of them. Um, and they could be recognised in the street by long flowing robes and all the robes were fringed by no, not bells. Long tassels. You remember Jesus says at the end of Matthew's Gospel, um, woe, he pronounces the seven woes, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. You put on big, big tassels, because the tassels were supposed to show the level of understanding you had of the tradition of the, of the elders. The bigger your tassel, apparently, the smarter you claimed to be. When a scribe was passing by, um, anywhere, most people stood up in respect. And they were always given places of honour in the, the feasts that uh, people had and synagogues. So, we are not going to finish today because we don't have a lot of time left. So I'm going to move on to... So next week, I will go through the temple and what synagogue liturgy is um, but in the last couple of minutes unless there's any questions no yes just a quick one yeah sure what would what would the um, Hasidic Jews be nowadays they're Protestants because okay. they've only existed from about 1760 okay so it's not a traditional oh no so they they you know you get um now, sometimes Protestants will say, I can't remember what, what kind of Protestant that is, but some Protestant groups will say that we are the same as the early church, right? And how the, the Catholics have added all these things, but we are the authentic early church. That's what they claim to be. Now, their whole movement has got a lot to do with that thing called Kabbalah, which Madonna made famous, because she claimed to be a Kabbalist, a Kabbalistic follower. It's a, a method of, it's a philosophy found in certain roots of Judaism, which is, we would call it uh, Gnosticism. And I think I haven't mentioned Gnosticism in the past. Gnosticism uh, comes from the, the Greek word Gnosis, or Gnosis, G-N-O-S-I-S. Gnosticism is people who claim to have secret knowledge. So someone who's an agnostic, that's why the word agnostic, agnostic means I don't know. Right, that's all that means, I don't know. But Gnosticism is a, a claim that you have got secret knowledge. And you're all familiar with organisations that claim to have secret knowledge about how the world works. One of them back home we call the Funny Handshake Brigade. I believe you call them the Masons. Um, that's, not, that's just one. Right? The, uh, there are certain groups of the Church of Latter-day Saints that are Gnostic. Um, David Koresh led one. I um, can't remember what they were called. Something Star. 
something like that, that they claim to have secret knowledge. Uh, this is an, an ongoing thing. St. John's Gospel, <coughs> excuse me, is actually written probably in direct, uh, targeted at people who claimed to have secret knowledge about Christianity and things like that. So Gnosticism covers a lot of things. Um, I did uh, two classes, two sessions, which we didn't put on the radio um, about Gnosticism. And we didn't put it on the radio because after we listened to it, it was so complicated. I even had, I had like, diagrams. You think this diagram up here is complicated? <laughs> right? Um, uh, it was so complicated that I could even see when I was saying, talking to people about it, people were looking at me and going, what? 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 what Father? And modern day Gnostics, um, you go on a website and you have a look at Gnosticism and there's you know, all these hierarchies and different things that affect different things and all that. And, and um, do you know who, do you know who's probably the largest group of Gnostics in the world just now? Scientology. Scientology, founded by L. Ron Hubbard, who was a scam artist. Um, has anybody ever read any of his science fiction books? Don't, because you'll never get the time back. But um, Scientology is very like that. But in Scientology, you actually have to pay to get to the next level. So, And you're not allowed to talk to other people about the levels in which you've got to. That, that's classic Gnosticism. It, it's attractive to people because people want to know things that other people don't know. You know, I mean, I could tell you all about it, but I need to kill you. <laughs> right? That, that's there's something about human beings that they find that attractive. They find having some knowledge somebody else doesn't have is a is is a attractive. Um, but that's that's what the so the Hasidics come from a, a Gnostic thing. Now, they do they think they're pure Jews, but they're not. And Reformed Jews, which are you know very popular here in the states, Reformed Jews are, are also Protestants. As well, they'd be more mainstream, equivalent Protestants, Reformed Jews, and now, of course, we have Jews for Jesus, as well. Um, But we do have there is a religious Catholic religious community that's all for it's all Judaic converts, but they're not the Jews for Jesus. Jews for Jesus uh, follow more evangelical things and stuff. So, and that was excellent because that means I I don't need to I, I won't. What I was about to do was the role of women at the time of Jesus. So I'll cover that next week as well, because um, I don't want people throwing things at me. Thanks for joining us today. You can listen again to this or any other episode of Let's Talk Catholic at our blog, Let's Talk Catholic Podcast. Blogspot.com, or you can find us on iTunes, Spotify, or almost any other podcast provider. You can also like us on Facebook. Let's Talk Catholic is produced by Nick Medelsky and can be heard right here on Relevant Radio in Northern Michigan, Saturdays at noon.